The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Yes, it does. Live from the NASDAQ market site in New York Times Square, this is Fast Money. I am Brian Sullivan. Good evening, everybody. Your traders on the desk are Pete Najarian, Brian Kelly, Dan Nathan, and Tim Seymour. Tonight on Fast, stop us if you've heard this one before. Another one for the record book. Stock surging to, you guessed it, all-time highs again. But what is really behind this amazing run? We're going to get some answers. Plus, whoever said that breaking up is hard to do? Well, with yes, stocks, maybe not. Match gets dumped and shares soar. So that got us thinking. Who else? What other stocks could benefit from breaking up? We're going to be naming names. And later, a prediction so wild, so bold, that honestly, we actually questioned if we'd even talk about it and bring it to you. We debated it, but we are going to bring it to you, and you will hear it coming up. True story. All right. All that ahead over the next 60 minutes, but right now, we've got an earnings alert on Nike, the stock bouncing back a bit after a little bit of a steep post-earnings drop. Let's get the numbers. Let's talk about China with Seema Modi back at CNBC HQ talking about one of her hometown heroes, Nike, Seema. That's exactly right, Brian. Take a look at the stock. Shares of Nike are turning around after slipping as much as 2% here in extended trade. It was a solid beat on its bottom line, but the company did say margins were negatively impacted by higher input costs, primarily due to incremental tariffs in North America. Separately, Nike reported greater China sales of $1.85 billion. That's up 23% this quarter, but it's a slower pace of growth than last quarter when sales grew by 27%. Still, Nike has been able to steadily grow its revenue in the country over the past five years, targeting the Chinese consumer, using platforms like Alibaba to sell its shoes and apparel. And in the earnings release, outgoing CEO Mark Parker uh, really emphasized its growth in digital. Those comments come as Nike severed ties with Amazon back in November, which was widely seen by Wall Street as a sign that Nike is doubling down on its e-commerce and initiatives and its direct-to-consumer model. The stock has been trading in record-high territory all this week, up 35% in 2019, but it is worth noting it is underperforming one of its key rivals, Adidas, which is up about 65%. Brian, the earnings call has begun, and I will get on it. Back to you. All right, Portland, Oregon's finest, Seema Modi. Seema, thank you very much. All right, Nike, what a run it's had this year. Any reason to either still own it, or buy it here, Pete. I would wait for a pullback, and part of the reason for that is I think it's stretched when I look at the valuation, I look at where the growth is right now, and you compare it to some of the others in the athleisure world, and it's very stretched. It's plus 30 uh, in terms of the P.E. right now, so this is something where I think you'd rather wait. I'd like to see this actually get some kind of a pullback. We might not get that, but I'd expect to see other, if it's going to work, I think there are other names that will work better, because when you look at the growth prospects of a Lululemon, for instance, growing faster, and when you look at that, given the multiple, I still think that Lulu is a better buy right now. Nike, I feel, is a little bit too expensive. Yeah, I'm on board with the Lulu. Nike, I don't think there's anything wrong Did with that. Did you call Peter Lulu? I did call him a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, said, said you're on board with I'm on board with Lulu. That's <laughs> not the name. first time it's yeah. been said. So as Lulu said, Nike's doing quite well. However, they do have some <laughs> margin issues. Some of it had to do with tariff. But a lot of this is priced into what's going on with Nike. So now they have the digital transformation, which is going well. But it's got to continue to go well. And it's, it's almost as if everybody is priced in 
all the good news for this name. So when it comes to Nike, I think you wait for that pullback. It doesn't mean just one day, though. This could take a couple weeks to kind of get the froth out of it. Then you want to go back in. The thing is, the froth in the stock doesn't seem to abate. And, and so if you think about the strength, so China was uh, maybe a mild disappointment. I think people in the street was really looking for 24 percent growth, came a little bit light. But strength across all geographies, the fact that the gross margin expansion, some of it is DTC based. And I, I'm not sure we know where this can go. I think if you look at a brand that has total control of its destiny, if you could choose one, and I'm not saying that they're going to go without traditional distribution because mm-hmm. uh, everybody needs that. But, but Nike is, is such a powerful global brand. You guys are talking about athleisure. I'm not sure we know what that multiple is supposed to be right now. The historical multiple, I don't think really. Wait, and, and again, th- you're throwing around acronyms, DTC, Whoa, direct, sorry, to con- no, direct to consumer. It's important. But this stock, Tim, has been a double in the last two years. But revenues have not doubled. Right. So is anything there out of whack? Well, I just high single digit EPS growth, which is what these guys, I think, will deliver comfortably uh, with U.S. comps that they look like they've gotten back in control of North America. That gives me a reason to, to stay the course. I'm long the stock. Yeah, so it's a mid-teens EPS grower, and it's a high single-digit revenue grower. And when you think about 23% growth in a region like China, given all the headwinds that we've had over the last few months with China, and there's nationalistic issues. I mean, think about this. Arsenal's game was not played in China just the other day because something a player said. You know, this company is obviously right in the crosshairs of a lot of this sort of behavior. We saw what happened with the NBA. So when you think about it, I mean, to do 23% in China, that's great, and it's only going to be gravy for here on out. I'd also make another point. Um, Seema mentioned that Amazon deal, so they had this uh, distribution deal. So the notion that they are doing well enough in their own DTC strategy, direct-to-consumer, they made this acquisition of Russell Wilson's startup, Trace Me, a couple months ago. This is like a technology platform Mm -hmm. that connects um, influencers, athletes with, you know, I think they're doing a lot of things really well. So to your guys' point, this stock broke out in late September after that last earnings announcement and at 90 bucks, and it really went straight to 100. And right? I think 90 is the target that I'd be yeah, looking right. for on a pullback. And John Donahoe, when he takes over, as the, which he will in January, that's a, that's a whole different thing, Brian, because now we're talking about a, a, a new CEO who actually has full, his arms totally around that world, DTC, yeah. the whole thing. That, I think, is something very positive. But when does that kick in? Yeah. Probably takes a couple of quarters. I'm just, listen, I'm just looking at the balance sheet and the income statement, okay? Yeah. EBITDA has increased from, what, $5.4 billion to $5.7 billion or whatever it is on an annual basis. Revenues have gone up by $5 billion, but that's it. It's growing, to Dan's point, amid single digits, but the stock has doubled. We're in agreeing years. with you because we're waiting for that yeah. pullback because we think you're, what you're implying is maybe it's a little expensive, right? So we're looking for that pullback. Well, people are to betting the growth it. is going. There to are really, other places that are growing much faster. I know. We're going to talk about Lulu later. I know. I'm just saying. Hold on. We're going to talk. Yeah, or the growth is going to. Right. One of those two things has to happen. I, I, I think you have to question whether or not the growth is going to accelerate given the environment that we're in. I think they're doing a lot of good things, but uh, is growth going to accelerate? Is there something more incrementally that they can do that's not? Pro- into the stock today. I, look, athleisure again. Go to sneakers. Uh, innovation. I know it's kind of a word you apply to technology, but it, it applies here. And, and I think Nike is known as the innovator. If you look at athleisure, you see what Lululemon is doing. Uh, you see what Athleta is doing. These are these are places where Nike, as far as I'm concerned, is competing and, and arguably is in a pole position because they are more closely assigned. So again, innovation, higher margins is the reason why you're paying more for the stock, Brian. Okay, there we go. So Nike, you're going to watch that. Obviously, more tonight, and of course tomorrow morning, and we'll talk about. Lululemon a little bit later on in the show. 
All right. So, of course, you know, folks, we are in the home stretch for holiday shopping. It's December 19th, for Pete's sakes. But it may not be a Merry Christmas for all retailers. We're going to break down who's on Santa's naughty list. But first, IAC Interactive is breaking up with Match. But no tears here. So that got us thinking. What other companies might benefit their investors if they were broken up with, if they became single from their parent company? We're going to name some names, as always, live from Times Square. We're back after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. As the song says, breaking up can be hard to do. Not always. Sometimes it's for the best. Because that's exactly what happened between Match Group and IAC Interactive, both going their separate ways as IAC spins off the dating website. But when they did it, Match shares soared. So, because we're smart TV types, that got us thinking. What other companies could benefit from a big-time breakup, a splitsville? Tim Seymour, why don't you kick it off with a name? So we, we talk often about Google, and there's the argument whether it's around some of the regulatory stuff. Could this company ever be split up? Uh, and, and I think when people look at the parts in Google, there's obviously a core business. YouTube is something that I think is extremely intrinsically valued. And part of the problem for investors is they don't really break out YouTube revenue, so it's tough to totally know. Based upon what we know they did last year, it was somewhere around $14 billion in net revenue. And if you look at a multiple that I think people could be applying on an EV basis, this is about a $150 billion company on a standard. Standalone. If you really want to put, you know, a fifteen hundred dollar target on Google, which also some other people may or may not want to do, it's about you know ten percent higher. I think it's very interesting. I don't know that it's going to happen in the short to medium term because I think, frankly, uh, YouTube is way too valuable to Google. It fits in so perfectly with everything else they're doing. But I like this concept because we're playing breaking up. Well, I, I would just make one point about that. I mean, when you're thinking about um, you know the parent that has a trillion dollar market cap or so, I mean, that value for YouTube is is very much a big part of that. And so I'm not sure spitting out one of their billion plus user properties does the parent a whole heck of a lot of good. Now, just make one other point. Is like when you think about Google, they don't have a social property amongst all of their different properties, and is this is about it. Yeah. And, and they need to keep this thing. And it's a really important part. I think it meshes together a lot of their other services. And, and the social aspects are a very important thing because all these names you look at Facebook, Google, those type of things. It's all about network effect, right? So where can they sell ads? Where can they start putting uh, get revenue? And what levers that they can pull? We talk about that yeah. all the time. They've got a lot of levers they can pull. I think if you break out something like YouTube, YouTube itself actually might do well. I think it'd be terrible for Google because they wouldn't have those levers. They wouldn't have that network. By the way, did you see the highest paid YouTuber? The list came out. $26 million a year. It's an eight-year-old kid Smart. who reviews oh. toys. Oh, $26 million bucks he, he made. What have I done wrong? Right. Right. Yeah. You've done so well, much. You didn't review toys. What have you done right is a better question, yeah. probably. Yeah. All right. Breaking up is hard to do. Dan Nathan, do you have a name that might benefit from the breakup? Yeah, this is a little Faber reporty here. You well, know, Remember Elliot? It's going to be good. Well, no, it's going to be great. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Elliot took a stake in AT&T uh, earlier in the year, and they were pushing for divestiture of uh, DirecTV. And this is one, you know, the, the, this company bought DirecTV. I think 
they had about 20 million subs at the time. This is about four years ago or so. Paid $50 million, uh, billion dollars for it. When I think about this, you know, AT&T has obviously been very inquisitive. They have this vertical strategy they're trying to employ here, uh, but they got a ton of debt. They got about $190 billion in debt, and I think they're going to have to pay that down, and that direct TV base is shrinking and may not be as valuable as they thought it was four years ago. So I'm probably with Elliot, and, um, you know, this one should go. Look, I like what you're doing there. The question is really, no, because I, I think Elliot is going to be forcing for change. I think they're forcing change in the C-suite that might avoid the next bad purchase like DirecTV. Yeah. What's DirecTV really worth here? I mean, you're selling this thing. Right. You're selling an asset near the bottom. And, and that, to me, uh, I'm not sure is the right time to do it, even though it makes sense. Maybe not, yeah, but, but it's an anchor. I think that's the point. What didn't here, make right? sense was the Godfather music in there. I have no idea why Who's that was. Or was that Young Frankenstein? Oh, no. Whatever happened oh, to Salazzo? All right, what do you got? All right, BK? Well, I, listen, I would just say, I would say this is the exact opposite situation that Google and YouTube have, where, where YouTube is very valuable. Dish, to me, is an anchor on what's going on at AT&T, and you just need to cut it loose. Okay, so now give us your pick. Oh, now it's my yeah, turn. Yeah, it's your turn. My time to shine. Time. So for me, that. it's Kraft Heinz. This is a merger that just was horrible from the get-go. Godfather, right? again. So you've got, you want these two to split <laughs> apart. You, you have Warren Buffett in there who's already told you this has been a bad deal. The problem these companies have is they're just this massive conglomeration of brands that nobody wants anymore. They have some good brands, but they can't pivot. They can't shift. They can't address the uh, tastes of America today. And even if they made an acquisition, and even if they made, shifted a bit, they're so big, it's not going to move the needle. So for me, I split them apart. Kraft goes one way. Heinz goes the other. Warren Buffett in the middle says... So the efficiencies aren't there. Is that what you're saying? That they, didn't, they never managed any kind of efficiencies. I'm, just, I would I'm not say pushing their, back. Yeah, no, yeah. I would say Has there been a price. food deal right. we could point to that said that really worked? That's been great. That's a good point. RJR Nabisco. But, I mean, I'm yeah. dating myself here. Hey, well, yeah, you're going back. back. Hey, you <laughs> asked me what kind of a deal. I was around for that. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so Kraft Heinz would be the name. Anybody there? Believe that Kraft Heinz should, maybe could, would? Well, so as these guys have talked about, that, that deal was about financial engineering. That deal was actually about squeezing as much you know, as you could out of, out of assets that, frankly, the food companies, they started to trade at a premium. Here's the problem. Again, splitting them up at a time when food companies, they probably saw a peak multiple 18 months ago. So I, I don't know how you get the value back. Okay. Pete, your pick. I'm going to give you something that's just totally off the wall that makes a lot of sense, however, which is Delta with the credit card company. Now, go back and look at what happened with Target when they spun off theirs 2012. They got $6 billion from TD for that entity. When you look at American Express right now, the global billings, 8% of those comes from the Delta American Express card. So that's something that's not being priced in at all, I don't think, right now. And by the way, when you spin it off, you hold on to 51%, you put out 49%, you're still going to have a piece of that, and that's a business that they say is going to be a $6, 7000000000 billion business by 2023. I think and you I'm still just going to pluck something out of this. I think you've learned that lesson from your hometown favorite Target. When they You're spun out that toot? credit card a couple of years ago, yeah. they spun out the business. You would like Delta to model after Absolutely, what Target did. Absolutely, because a lot of people are, Delta, are, are looking at what Target's done, many other things, and they continue to mirror that. This is just one more. All right, Absolutely. good stuff there. Yeah. Some interesting names and an interesting thing there. we got the Godfather music as well. Young Frankenstein. Is it Young Frankenstein? All right, yeah. anyway, we've got much close. more fast money ahead. Yes. Here's what's coming up. What a difference four months make. Back in August, bond markets were flashing major warning signals. But what are they saying now about what's to come in the new year? Plus, Star Wars fans are gearing up for the final installment of the fabled franchise. But will the blockbuster be a box office boom or bust? We've got that and more when Fast Money returns.
people today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. You know this, stocks hitting more all-time highs again today. But there's something big that's happening in the bond world that's a total 180 from what happened just a short time ago. So let us fire up the old Fast Money time machine for a trip back all the way to late summer when this was playing out on our air. A brutal day on Wall Street. Stocks plunging as the yield curve inverted for the first time since 2007. The selling widespread. The Dow dropping more than 800 points. Yeah. Remember that late summer panic of the yield curve inversion, imminent recession, imminent doom, stocks going to zero? Well, today, the spread between the two and 10-year treasuries hit the highest level of the year. So, Dan Nathan, is the bond market Sending all clear for the stock market. Of course not. I mean, like, think about it. When it was the last time we had a yield curve inversion, it was like 2006, and the stock market didn't top out for another 12 to 18 months, which is what everybody was saying last summer anyway. They're like, chill out. The market's not going to crash here, but we have a year to 18 months. That's the average. So to me, I just don't, I don't find that particularly useful one way or another. I don't think anybody was saying on August 6, 2019, the market's crashing right here because the, two, the 210 spread just inverted or something. Like but, but so I, I don't it know. It actually did sound like Melissa said exactly that. We were down 800 that points. It did sound like well, that. Is, yeah. Am I the only one that no, heard that? I That's think the commentary like. afterwards, <laughs> though, showed that you do you do have this this yield curve gets a lot steeper right before a recession. And what's interesting, if you watch that yield curve along with jobless claims, jobless claims start to tick up, yield curve starts to get steeper, and then you have the recession. But that's 12 months from now. So we're looking, you know, Q4 of 2020 at the earliest. Well, the question is, is the yield curve steepening from the short end or the long end, and, and what do you want to see? And I would make an argument that the Fed cutting rates and sending that vibe out there, you basically saw a bull steepening, which was coming in from the short end. The most important thing I think that happened today is that the Riksbank in Sweden decided to say no mas to, to negative interest rates. And what we're seeing across Europe, we've heard this with the BOJ. We kind of are waiting for the Fed. The irony, of course, is the Fed that really started all of this globally. Zero interest rates are not working. And we're hearing central banks start to make this plea that they're going to try something new. And ultimately, that will inevitably push yields higher. That's very important. But I want to make one point. Your, your point is, is that when the Fed cut interest rates on July 31st, 25 basis points for the first time in 10 years, they fixed the inverted yield curve and they did it two more times. Right. And who the heck knows what was 
was going to happen from there on out. The market was getting killed that day because Trump introduced those new tariffs. That combination was a weird sort of situation. So the point was 12 to 18 months, that's when you get the recession on average in the mm-hmm. post-World mm-hmm. War, blah, 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 whatever. And who knows what the market does in between but, the inversion and the recession. I mean, and we'll, get, we'll wrap it up there and bring in Tommy, but I think there's two things here. Number one, it's a good lesson to our viewers and listeners that just one indicator doth not a market make. And i got to correct something that Tim said, because the Swedish Rich Bank did not say no mas, they said intermer, which means no more <laughs> yeah, in Swedish. Yeah. All right, let's now bring well in Tom done, Lee. He is co-founder and head of research at Fundstrat Global Advisors. You just released your 2020 outlook this morning. Bullish, yeah. Tom? Yeah, I think 2020 is going to be a continuation of the kind of market we saw this year. Um, but it's a lot more about the fact that earnings could beat uh, significantly on the upside. You know, we've got a PMI recovery, an inventory build, easing financial conditions, plus potential for fiscal stimulus. All this means earnings could grow more than 10%. The majority of our guests that we've had on with their outlooks and their predictions are optimistic, but not wildly so. Seven, eight, nine percent gains, high single digits for the S&P 500. Where exactly do you stand? Um, so I, I think the minimum is plus 10. Um, Minimum. Yeah, and that's just an earnings with flat P.E. I think P.E. could expand, so I think total return next year will be better than 10%. So it'll look like 2010. Tom, what what part of the subsectors do you think you get the most earnings inflection here, whether it's, again, recovery from trade? Where do you think you're getting most of that? Yeah, um, so 45% of the earnings growth should come from tech, industrials, energy, and basic materials. And a lot of them are value sectors, mm-hmm. which do well when PMIs recover. So I think if you want to be cyclical, uh, overweight those, and it's a lot like 2016, 2017. So, Tom, I'm curious. We talked a little bit about the bond market, right? And we know that the Federal Reserve has now said they're going to tolerate some more inflation. When does that start to erode the earnings that you're talking about? And do we have to worry about that in the first half of 2020? Yeah, uh, inflation's a wild card because a little bit probably is embraced by markets because, as you guys are saying, negative rates aren't perceived as healthy. But uh, a hot inflation read would probably scare people because of, of what central banks have to do. So it, it's uncertain. But I, you know, I, I don't think expectations are high, and I think it won't, we won't see anything for at least the first half. Hey, Tom, we, we talk about this. We were just talking about the yield curve and everything else, right? So what about financials? Where do you stand right for next year, for 2020? How is that going to be a great area to be? You mentioned tech, you mentioned energy, you mentioned a lot of things. I don't know if I heard you say financials. Oh, yeah. I, I should have mentioned financials because it's 21% of the Russell 1000 value index. Financials have really been good earnings producers in a tough environment. And as the curve steepens, they can make more money. They're under-owned. So, yeah. You know, maybe it's consensus, but I think they're going to do great next year. Yeah, I, I want to make one point. You know, all summer I heard you as lead up to the in, uh, inverted yield curve. You were like, don't panic. And I give you guys a lot of credit and I read your stuff and, and you guys have been dead on on that. But the point um, about the stock market next year and you're saying multiple expansion. Didn't we see a lot of that, Tom, this year? Year over year, if you think about where uh, S&P earnings estimates were at the start of 2019 Apple, and, where, and where they're going to be yeah. right now, you know, we're down like 12 points from the and, and the S&P is up 27 percent and it's trading at 19 times. Isn't that how we just got this expansion? Isn't that anticipating what you say is probably a base case scenario for next uh, year earnings? Yeah. So 2019 was all P.E. Yeah. It started off at 12 times. We exited. We're going to exit at 18. So it's been E's collapsed and P.E. has gone up. Um, But, you know, when you start to do forward estimates, 
I think earnings estimates are going to go up in, for 2020 and 2021. So I think the multiple might actually contract, but consensus is going to bring numbers up. So I think that's why you can still get 10%, but you could lose a point or two on PE. Making a lot of people happy with that prediction if it comes true, Tom. But by the way, we're going to have a stick around, if you don't mind, because I think Tom's going to have a lot to say about what is coming up next. When we come back after the break, there's a call out there, prediction so wild. So bold, literally debated before the show whether we should even talk about it. Ooh, but we will, and we're going to bring it to you and get reaction when Fast Money returns. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. Let's take a look at Bitcoin. The crypto falling below 7,000 this week, back above it at 7,130 right now. But one major Bitcoin bull says it might be ready for a big-time breakout. Longtime venture capitalist Tim Draper doubling down on his prediction today that Bitcoin prices could hit $250,000 each in the next two years. Brian Kelly's at the plasma. And i got to be honest with you, Brian, when the producers, we talked about this earlier today, I said, I don't know if we should talk about it because I felt like it was so bold, it's almost irresponsible. But Draper's a, he's a well-known guy. Yep. He's not going to say anything he doesn't believe. So we went ahead and did this. I mean, is there anything that you're seeing that could make this bizarro prediction happen? So, it, it, yeah, you know what? It sounds bizarro, but it wouldn't be out of the realm of what Bitcoin has done in the past. And so that's why I wanted to bring up this chart. And just to be clear, this is not my call, but I just want to take a look at what Bitcoin does. So the chart we have here is a log chart of Bitcoin since 2013. And as you know, Carter Worth will say, the lines draw themselves, but you have this channel going all the way back to 2013, and it's traded nicely in that. Now, look at this. If you go all the way out here to the top of this channel here, that's about 200,000, 250,000. So Bitcoin just stayed in this pattern, and this is normal analysis that people do on all asset classes. If it just stayed in that channel, the top of that channel is around 200, 250,000. So that's the technicals behind it. The fundamentals, let's call it, is that if Bitcoin were at 250000 that'd be about a $4.5 trillion market cap, which would be about half the market cap of all the gold in the world. And so I think Tim Draper thinks, and I certainly have some of this view, is that Bitcoin is going to take market share from gold. So if you think over the next two years it could take 50% of that market share, then that prediction isn't too far out of whack. Okay, not too far to walk. BK, come on back to the Bye desk. Back, big boy. All right, so Tom, you've been obviously bullish on, on Bitcoin. I mean, and again, I'm not disrespecting Tim Draper at all. He's obviously an incredibly smart and successful guy, but is this one of those headlines you put out just to get news, or do you really believe this is something that can happen? Not you, but him. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, I kind of agree with Brian. You know, when you look at this on a log basis, the idea that Bitcoin would get there would be consistent with the idea it's a generational trade. Um, I don't know if 24 months is how long it would take, if, unless it would take five years. But if it took five years, I think it'd still be considered a huge, massive, surprising success. 200. Anybody? Well, well, here's, here's, I think, the point these guys are making. I would put it in different terms for a guy that's not in the Bitcoin market every day. The, the, the volatility you see in this asset class is so extraordinary that it's still been a great year for Bitcoin despite this pullback. It's double. People, yeah. people that, are, that have been playing in this asset class from the beginning are used to these kinds of moves up and down and are not running for the door, or at least not the dedicated folks. There's been a lot of folks that have run into this asset class and have run for the door, and I think that's probably the message in here. I mean, let's not forget Bitcoin. 
Bitcoin was basically worth a penny for right. the first couple years of its existence. I mean, it, you know, so it's, it's had these incredible runs. I think that's the point. It, it's not unusual for this asset class to move that much. Whether it gets there, we don't have any idea. But it's not unusual to see it. I mean, and and my, my beef with the call is not that I don't think that Bitcoin has value. I, I mean, I, it's right. that I wonder if that move down from 20000 back down has just scared off, to Tim's point, so many potential well, buyers of the asset class. I think it has, but I think we're probably washed out, right? And listen, you don't need to have a $250,000 price target to still do well in Bitcoin. If it went to $14,000, you'd double your money. I'd be very happy with that. Yeah, if I was eight feet tall, I might be in the NBA. I mean, if would could, right? I mean, if you would. Actually, but here's the point. It was at fourteen thousand this year. Right? So that is not that unusual. It was at thirteen nine earlier this year. So again, these moves are extraordinary, but not unusual. Anything else in the crypto space, Tom, before we let you go that you like? Uh well, you know Any blockchain I- plays? Uh you know, I mean I I'd still say if I looked at twenty twenty the easiest way to make money in crypto is going to be a position in Bitcoin. I mean, as you guys mentioned, it's actually done quite well this year. What's interesting is, you know, crypto, especially Bitcoin, really does seem to be textbook in some of these systematic mm-hmm. models. Like, I think one of the best has been Tom DeMarc's uh, mm-hmm. sort of his combo counts. And if you look at it, at these charts, you know, at 13s, they've been turning points. And so... Bitcoin's getting close to I'm a high. You know, Mark Husco, Morgan Creek, well-known guy to this show, and Melissa and everybody. I, and, he, he, and I'm going to – he might be watching. If I, if I screw up your, your stat, watching, Mark, I apologize. His whole point on – and he's a wealth management guy and a hedge fund yeah, guy. His whole point is if you just had 1% or 2% of your portfolio in Bitcoin, just 1% or 2%, you would have increased your gains – and, again, I'm screwing up the numbers by – by a couple of percent a year. So you just – you substitute 1% or 2% from some other asset class – and you would have increased your overall returns very nicely. Yeah, and if I think regulatory opposition, which has been a dark cloud the last few months, if that diminishes next year, 2020 should be a lot better than 2019 for crypto. So maybe a good risk reward. All right, Tom Lee, thank you very much. And bullish on the equity markets, 10-plus percent. All right, coming up, you hear the music and you see the tree. And with only a few shopping days left till Christmas, we're going to find out what retailers may have made the naughty and the nice lists. As always, we are live for the NASDAQ, just very so close to that tree. We're back right up close. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. We are in the final countdown to Christmas. Just five full shopping days left. Ramp it up. And CNBC's All-America Economic Survey finds 43% of Americans plan to shop online this holiday season. But the majority of respondents will still head out to stores. That is good news for retailers hard hit by e-commerce giants like Amazon and others. Your next guest made his career running the nation's biggest malls. Dan Hurwitz is now chairman of the International Council of Shopping Centers and runs Raider Hill Advisors. Dan, welcome. Please dispel one myth I believe exists, and maybe it's not true, is that the Internet, while growing still, is not going to kill everybody because Americans fundamentally, A, like to shop. It can be fun. And it's an experience. I'm not defending all retailers, but I'm not. Amazon's not going to put everybody out of business, is it? No, they're not going to put everyone out of business. And in fact, they've taught a lot of retailers how to distribute goods properly. So they're actually going to help a lot of retailers thrive. 
At the end of the day, in our business, the best merchant wins. Whether it's Amazon, whether it's Macy's, whether it's whomever, whether it's Target, whether it's Walmart, we've all learned never to bet against Walmart. So, so as a practical matter, if you can have a bricks-and-mortar presence and a digital presence mm-hmm. at the same time, you're going to be a winner. Who's you, doing it right right now? Well, Target's doing it right. Walmart's doing it right. Doing it right. Best Buy's doing it great. And what's happening is 70% of those people that go into a store, buy online, pick up in store, are also buying something else in the store. So the cohesion between the two, between the bricks and mortar and the digital, is what's making people successful. And those that aren't doing it successful will ultimately fail. I, you know, it's two out of three of those, by the way, Minneapolis You're companies right. there. Giddy two up. great companies. I, 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 do, I, do, yeah. I do wonder if, if, they're, if that's the hidden part of the retail story, Dan, that fewer, not enough people are talking about, which is, when you go into a store, you're probably going to come out with something you did not anticipate buying. Totally. Online, you tend to just target a specific thing and buy that. That's kind of the lost revenue of retailers that people don't talk about. They don't talk about it, and, but it's still happening because the upsell, when you go and you buy online and you still pick up in store, because don't forget, people are going to be incentivized to pick up in the store because retailers lose money shipping you goods for free. So they're going to have to figure out a better way to get you into the store. And when they get you into the store, there's an upsell. And that upsell is a highly profitable upsell. And we're going to see more of that as, a, as, as this evolution continues. But the whole concept of an apocalypse of bricks and mortar is really it was overblown. We talked about it here for years that it was overblown. Yep. <laughs> Best Buy was the best example. People were talking about them disappearing. They've done a f- phenomenal job turning it around, as has Target, as has Walmart. And that'll continue. But, Dan, the, the apocalypse around department stores, they're noticeably absent from your, your analysis here. So yeah. are, are they dead? Um, and, again, so, so tied to the mall experience you know so well. I think some will struggle to survive and some will get it done right. I mean, I happen to be a fan of Macy's. I like, I like what Macy's is doing. I think they, they have a very strong management team. They have great real estate. What are they doing? They, they have sophisticated it, buyers. They're reinventing their inventory. They're looking, they're sourcing the right goods at the right price at the right time. They have to make the experience better, obviously. But in many respects in our business, people talk about experience. Mm-hmm. The merchandise is the experience. You can have a great experience. If you have lousy merchandise, it's not going to work. And Macy's has a, big, a great buying group that I wouldn't bet against. So you mentioned uh, just that upsell with that, that kind of uh, omnichannel approach. And, and Amazon's making a lot of other retailers better. And that's clearly the case with like names like Target. They forced them to make these yeah. sorts of investments. Do you see Amazon doing another sort of acquisition of a bricks-and-mortar retailer? Because obviously that was their first step because they are just online, or they were online. They're getting 50% of new online online um, growth, right? But, but don't they need to broaden it out? Wouldn't a Best Buy have been a great retailer for them to kind of own nationally? I think there would have been a number of great retailers for Amazon to own nationally. The question is, if they really have a store, forget about, forget about Whole Foods for a minute, yeah. just an Amazon store, I'm not so sure what they put in it. You know, one of the things there, they're great distributors of goods, but if you walk into their stores today, I don't know if you would argue that they run a great experiential store with terrific merchandise. So I think they have to run a different kind of store but I do think there's an opportunity for them to, to have expand their reach dramatically. Well, I, I, do, I do hope, just for the sake of places like Northeast Ohio, where there's a lot of unemployment, yeah. these giant, hulking, empty malls, which are, you know, they bring down the value of everything around them, that an Amazon or somebody else will buy them and use them as distribution centers that could bring jobs and whatever. We'll see. That's a different conversation. Dan Hurwitz, thank you very much. Thank Happy you. holidays. Happy New Year, Dan. Happy holidays. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So the Christmas shopping season might be coming to a close. Still got a few days. 
But there is something big happening in the new year that options traders are setting their sights on. And one measure, major athleisure stock, could come out a big winner. It's a name we talked about earlier. And Oppenheimer Managing Director and Head of Equity Derivatives, Alone Rosen, is over at the plasma to break down the action. Alone, welcome. What are you seeing out there? Hey, Brian, great to be here. Uh, we're approaching a unique uh, period ahead in the first three weeks of January in the consumer and retail space where you have holiday updates, uh, quarter four sales, monthly updates, and the ICR conference, which starts uh, January 13th for three days which is a unique platform that brings together uh, buy-side investment managers, sell-side uh, representatives in banking and research, private equity, and public and private companies discussing the most recent trends in the consumer industry. And one, uh, one thing we've noticed is there's a lot of moves because 25% of the pre-announcements occur in this three-week period. Uh, we want to focus on Lululemon. It's a stock that uh, many people love. I was there uh, last weekend buying clothes, and they're still scratching the surface uh, in many areas. Uh, we want to add exposure here. And if you look at the statistics over the last eight years, uh, the stock has moved up or down 12%. Yet the options are giving us an opportunity here where you can buy the 220 calls in January. That expires January 17th, so it covers the three-week period. And you're paying around $9 for this. Uh, the stock was around 224 So it's a $5 premium. It's around 2.5%. So it's a very cheap way to add defined risk exposure in this name. Uh, and one thing we do like about Lululemon here is specifically, if you look at the implied volatility here, this big drop was earnings related. So you're buying volatility very cheap, and also you're seeing the stock starting to churn a bit. Every dip is being bought. So we want to maintain upside. Uh, you have a great way to add exposure, uh, define risk. We want to be in Lululemon calls higher into the new year. All right, really interesting there. Alone Rosen, by the way, welcome to Fast Money. Good to see you. Thank you very much. Alone, we'll see you again. All right, Pete, we know you love yeah. Lulu. Continue to love it, too, because they all they, they all they do is continue to deliver, right? Whether it's in the e-commerce side of their business or they talked about men and they're absolutely killing it on the men's side as well. So there's there's different. We talk about this these stocks all the time and where can they possibly grow from where they are presently? Well, that's where they're growing. And th- those two elements, the other day there was a huge seller out there of almost $3 million worth of stock, right? So that was actually holding down the stock for a little while. Now that looks like that was executed, and I think we have a little bit more upside coming in the stock. I own the stock. I would sell calls against my position because I'm already long, but I'd sell them well out of the money. You're getting great premiums. If you're able to do that every month, every two months, at the end of the year, it's an incredible amount of money percentage-wise that you can get back in. Yeah, I would just say that that chart on a one-year basis you have up there is really a work of art, lower left, bottom right. And if you draw a line from the lows in December 2018, uh, you know, 200 bucks is really a level where it looks like we'd be back at that uptrend, and that would be a great entrance. But I think the trade that alone, uh, you know, laid out is like, yeah, you're risking a few percent. He's targeting an event. He's told you that on average the stock moves this much around that event. That's one way to do it with defined risk. I like it. Uh, yeah, look, uh, Pete, talking about the addressable market for these guys totally changed. Uh, you look at this has been a four and a half bagger in the last two and a half years, but the valuation with that kind of growth. I'm reluctant, but I can't deny that market opportunity. It's been a heck of a run. I mean, and, and by the way, they had some issues a couple of years ago. The CEO, the founder, they had a fight. This thing has really been a phoenix, sort of rising from the ashes. Do they do big and tall? I'm going to check it out. You, should, you, should. you know? <laughs> I'm just saying, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, big and tall. I mean, uh, for the eight Depends foot. what he means the by eight that. Foot. Exactly. <laughs> All I can think about is for the eight-footer. Roddy Dangerfield, Thornton Mellon, back to school. <laughs> 
big and fat or whatever it was. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. All right, for more options action, be sure to catch the full show tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Pass the peanut brittle. All right, up next, it's Star Wars opening weekend, and Julia Borston is live in Hollywood for the movie's launch. Julia, please save us. May the force be with you. Well, May the Force be with you. This is Disney's Star Wars exhibit, The Evolution of the Stormtrooper. I'm in the basement of the El Capitan Theater in Hollywood, where there has been a 24-hour movie marathon going on since last night in the lead-up to the debut of The Rise of Skywalker. We'll show you how Disney is pulling out all the stops for the final movie in the Star Wars saga, and we'll tell you what it means for the media giant. That's coming up at the break. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. So we got some breaking news on Darden Restaurants, the parent company of Yard House, Longhorn Steakhouse, and Olive Garden leaving investors. A little indigested now. That stock down 6%. Tonight's buzzkill. Shares falling after the restaurant operator missed estimates on the top line, posted its biggest loss since March of 2018. Stock's still positive, though. Guys, on the year, but lagging the broader market. Okay, they said literally, Tim, I'm looking at the release. Yep. Their lasagna Mia promotion was a bust. <laughs> Go figure. Go, it's so so I'm not joking. Lasagna Mia didn't yeah. get people Stocks into the down store. 6%. You think there'd be margin there? Well, look, what happened here is same store sales at Olive Garden, which I think is the most important. With all due respect to Longhorn, um, you know the fact that they missed same store sales by about one and a half percent, and that you had an extended Thanksgiving period, brings into question whether they can hit their full year guide. So, uh, at a time when I think there's other call them secular structural dynamics here, including labor, food costs, and whatnot. Um, this stock at best is a neutral if you look at the street, and, and I don't think you need to follow this news in there tomorrow. Anybody like Darden? No. 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 I mean, maybe at 100 bucks, but it, it looks like it's going right back to that. Okay. I, I just don't think you have to talk. Tough environment. Yeah. yeah, it is. All right. Thank you. All right, let's move on. So as we just saw, Julia, the final frontier for Disney's Star Wars trilogy, The Rise of Skywalker. It's theaters around the globe. Julia Borston is out in Hollywood, California (laughs) with all the it's a trap. I don't know. Julia, thank you. Um, There's been a movie marathon going on here since last night. They're in the eighth film in this series. The Last Jedi is playing now. And then The Rise of Skywalker will make its debut in just a couple of hours. And this theater, Disney's El Capitan, is one of 21 theaters around the country that has been doing this movie marathon. Just to give you a sense of the demand from the super fans, when the 500 tickets for this marathon went on sale for $125 a piece, they sold out within minutes. Now, Comscore projects that this weekend in North America, The Rise of Skywalker will gross about $175 million at the box office. $200 million would be the second biggest opening of the year and the seventh biggest opening of all time. But no, even if it's in that range, it would be well behind the prior two Star Wars films. Now, Disney says it will not release another Star Wars in movie theaters for another three years. But the streaming service in the parks still have a lot riding on the franchise in the meantime. Disney spent over a billion dollars on each of its Star Wars lands in Orlando and Anaheim, which opened earlier this year. The company admitting that early attendance was lower than expected. And Star Wars is, of course, a key piece of Disney+. Plus. Star Wars spinoff The Mandalorian was the flagship show of the service's launch. And Disney has several other live-action and animated series in production. We'll have to see whether The Mandalorian streaming at home ends up driving more interest in getting people into the movie theater or raises the bar for people getting off the couch and going out to the movies. Now, compared to the rave reviews for the last two Star Wars films, 
This film has just a 58 positive critics rating on Rotten Tomatoes, so, so pretty negative in contrast there. But there's no question that Disney's $4 billion acquisition of Lucasfilm has more than paid off. The first four films that Disney has made from Lucasfilm, including those last two Star Wars movies, have grossed nearly $5 billion worldwide. And going into the weekend, no matter what happens, Disney's already dominating the box office this year with nearly one-third studio market share for the box office in the domestic mar uh, market here. Back any, to you guys. Any sign, Julia, of Star Wars burnout? Sounds like that might be the case. Well, we'll have to see because there was a huge amount of enthusiasm for The Mandalorian indicating that maybe a little bit of a break since the last Star Wars movie. There was a huge, you know, sort of resurgence of enthusiasm here. But I think there will be a lot of people curious to see how the saga ends. We'll have to see, though, if the fact that there are seven Mandalorian episodes at home, they're high quality, they look very expensive, they look like the kind of thing you would see in theaters. Will that end up being a plus or minus? Yeah, we'll Julia Borston, good stuff there. Thank you very much. All right, so... Just looking at a chart, guys, from Star Wars to streaming count out with a note saying Disney Plus brought in a whopping 24 million new subs last month. The stock is, is done pretty well. Bob Iger, nobody's questioning what, what, what a great job he has done as CEO. But the, the Mandalorian, a little bit all over the place. The new Star Wars, as you said, Julie, Rotten Tomatoes, attendance, maybe not what they wanted to be. Yeah. Stock's been a winner. Do we stay with it, Tim? Well, I mean, first of all, Disney Plus is going to lose money, but it's about market share, and that's part of the help from the multiple. I like Disney, so I'm not, I'm not running away from that. Box office is enormous. Um, Frozen 2 is a billion. You had Avengers. You had Lion King. You had Toy Story 4. That's the flywheel that keeps on giving for this franchise. I, I think that's why the multiple's going higher. Okay. Yeah, I think, listen, if we get bad reviews or bad numbers this weekend, then Disney goes down on Monday. I think that's your opportunity to buy it. All right. Up next, we're going to get our final trades. Get your names yeah. ready, guys. We're going to get that together right. as well. We're back on more Fast Money right after this. Uh, it is time now for your final trade. Let's go around the horn tonight. Pete. Everybody knows that I love Home Depot, which I still do, but it got a little expensive. It's pulled back. I think Lowe's has room to the upside. Giddy up. Giddy up. All right, BK. Yeah, well, for me, it's Bitcoin bounced off an interesting level at this, uh, the same level it bounced off of the trend line from last year. The market continues to misprice the growth in addresses. How about 250? Well, 250. All right, Dan Nathan. Is it me or does it feel like Walmart's just been basing at 120? Basing. Like, basing. Yeah. yeah. It really feels like it's getting set up in the new year to kind of break out a little bit. Oh, Walmart. Would Walmart be a top retail pick? Oh, well. Well, it's, I mean, I'm just saying, these others that we talked about have really outperformed. I think this one plays some catch-up. Listen, i got to ask you, he can talk about anything. He can. Right down, uh, he can do it all. Brian Seymour, it's been great having you this week, by the way, big and tall, whatever you are. Um, and, and Both. So we talked about Double Nike feet. at the top of the block here. You know, the, the gross margin expansion in the short run certainly runs into some, some headwinds from tariffs. But again, I think that's a one-off moment for effectively the leader in a duopoly. Nike is the stock. I think you can stay long, Brian. Yeah, and it appears that everybody loves Lulu. Honestly, everybody yeah. does. All right, guys, good show tonight. Appreciate that. All right, we'll see you tomorrow night. Mad Money with Jim Cramer begins right now. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. 
With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.